0: Welcome to Sound & Vision. Conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound & Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound & Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Golden makes the best acrylic paints. They manufacture the Williamsburg line of artist oil paints, core watercolors, and some of the best mediums for your paint you can get. Founded in 1980 by Sam Golden, based out of New Berlin, New York, it's an employee-owned company that is committed to making the best products for you to use in your studio. You can find out more about Golden on their website, goldenpaints.com, or in your local art store. Sound Vision is also sponsored by Fulcrum Coffee Roasters. Fulcrum Coffee is a Seattle-based, full-service, wholesale coffee roaster and retailer with over 25 years of experience. Their deeply personal relationships, collaborations, and services they provide transform how customers experience and enjoy coffee. You can order their coffee, which comes in many different blends, roasts, and you can even get a subscription service where they deliver different blends to your doorstep. You can find all that at fulcrumcoffee.com. Why I Make Art Contemporary Artist Stories About Life and Work The Sound of Vision Podcast Book is available wherever you get books through the publisher at Altelier Editions at Artbook online at Amazon Barnes and Noble anywhere you can find books Google says 30 illuminating profiles of working artists sharing the influences and experiences that inspire them to create art in America today this book explores the practices and life stories of artists across multiple mediums, including painting, photography, sculpture, land art, and more. Check out the book, Why I Make Art, and support the Sound and Vision podcast. Sue De beer's work spans the diverse disciplines of film and installation, sculpture, and photography. She received her BFA from Parsons and her MFA from Columbia University. Solo exhibitions include the Kunstwerk in Berlin, the Whitney Museum of American Art, the Park Avenue Armory, and the High Line New York, as well as Marian Boski Gallery in New York, where she is represented. Her work has been included in group exhibitions in such venues as the New Museum, the Whitney Museum, PS1 MoMA, the Brooklyn Museum, the Reina Sofia in Madrid the Museum of Modern Art in Busan and South Korea, amongst others. Sue's work is included in the permanent collections of the Museum of Modern Art, the Whitney Museum, the New Museum, the Brooklyn Museum, the Dest Foundation, the Goethe's Collection, and others. She's a recipient of an American Academy in Berlin Fellowship, a John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Fellowship, and a Paula Krasner Foundation grant. I spoke with Sue about growing up in a charged location going to music shows in high school, film and horror flicks, creating environments, living in Berlin, and much more. Here's our conversation. I should say that I've been a huge fan of your work for a long time.
1: That's really kind of you. I mean, when did you see my work? What what pieces have you seen?
0: Uh, I don't know. I don't know the name of them. Um, I started seeing your work a long time ago. You mm. know, we both... Um, I, I showed for... I had one show at Sandroni Ray back in the day. Oh,
1: I missed them.
0: In 2003. So... Yeah. That was a ways back. But I had seen your work, I'm sure, starting back then. And then I remember I had a show at Haunch of Venison in Berlin because they represented me. And... When I went for my opening, we went around. Me and the director went around to see other shows, and we saw your show. I believe, right? It Ar- was it at Arden and Partner. Arden and
1: Partner, that? yeah, that was a big show. That yeah, um, I worked for a few years on that show. That was had the quickening and permanent revolution both.
0: See, I went. I went all the way to Berlin to see your work. <laughs>
1: so much. Yeah, it's nice that you saw that and it had that hallway installation. Um, yeah, that was quite that I put so much into making that show. I'm so glad that you saw it.
0: No, it was really good. It was one of those shows that kind of like burned into my mind. There's oh, there's not that you. many. You know, the, the, I mean there there are shows like that, but I mean that one really burnt in my mind and i've been telling you know i've been teaching for a while and i always tell students about your work
1: and oh, i feel like kind it of you, it, thank you.
0: it scratches an itch that a lot of people um, you know don't scratch but but yeah so i did see that work and i thought about i wanted to ask you about that as soon as you said that was a big show and you worked really hard on that work i don't know if you showed that work anywhere else but i do know that my show that i had in berlin was um 333 portraits of people that were in my consciousness and I spent three years on that show and Mm. then it went to Berlin they wanted to show it there on this huge wall they had and I feel like I was there for the opening for like two days I went with my wife we came back because our son was really young then and the show just kind of went away I don't know there's something about when you have a show somewhere else that you don't feel as connected to it than when it's in New York or your home base I think uh, Well, I was
1: living in Berlin when I did that show, so I didn't know. Yeah, (laughs) I I spent quite a bit of time in that space, and
0: so it felt good.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was an ambitious thing. I at the time, it was a better time for doing these large scale, uh, kind of sculptural installations, immersive installations, and um, somehow the market and the gallery system had more, more space uh, to really take on something like that, which is, it's quite a lot for what a gallery is, which is, you know, galleries are, they're really made for for painting <laughs> and <laughs> photography. And, right. um And that was... I had talked with Matthias about doing two big video installations and another sculptural installation that would be immersive, and um, and he said, "Yeah, let's let's do it." And so it was for me; it was a huge endeavor just to produce all that work at that scale, and and then to install it. The install was quite intense, and um, but I'm I'm really proud of that show. I'm glad that you
0: yeah it was good and you get you know people pay attention to what you're doing and rightfully so so it must be nice to i mean i was doing a little bit of research and uh you know your shows get covered which is (laughs) a nice feeling but i don't know the one thing that i really thought would be fun to talk to you about well i don't know if about fun yeah interesting is that we're basically the same age right so we've both traversed this um, period of when... Remember when, like, reviews used to be really important?
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: And now it feels like... I mean, I'm, I'm half-joking, but, you know, everything's so disseminated now. Like, the intensity of the reaction, I feel like, is diluted in a way, or the experience. And you happen to work in across media, and many of those... Ways of getting your ideas and your stuff out is the same media that is now sort of immersive of everyone's experience and 24-7 and coming at you on your phones and your TVs and it's decentralized. You know, like the gallery video now feels so different to me than when I walked into Deitch Projects and I saw that um, Johan Grimopas' Grim uh, Tao History, which like rocked me. Like that installation. Oh, I
1: remember that show. Yeah, yeah, that yeah kicked
0: me in the in the groin pretty hard. Like it was really amazing. And now I think if I would have come to that installation or that show in today's atmosphere, not it wouldn't have had the same impact. You know. So I wonder how you feel about, or like, do you also have that the, the musings on how things have changed in the sense of you know our experience with that kind of media.
1: I do remember, because my first uh, gallery dealer was Jeffrey Deitch in, in New York, and um, I remember Mariko Mori was showing with him, and she had an exhibition where she had a flat-screen TV, and it was a technological marvel. No Avant-garde, one could believe it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, she
0: was so cool.
1: <laughs> People would go stand in front of it and be like, oh, it's so thin. It's like a wafer on the wall. Yeah. It's made video like painting. Yeah. You know, I, I, we have moved into a completely different space with moving image work. And I think in, in some ways it's exciting because really full pieces can be viewed by people at midnight in their beds on their phones (laughs) and um i i also love the physical exhibition space and i do wish that in this this moment that there was more space for large-scale sculptural intervention into spaces um because it is it's a unique viewing experience i mean it's um especially right now when we've all been so isolated from each other it seems like a good moment for um a really physical experience of work
0: right but but i wonder if
1: yeah it's i mean these these funny um meow wolf and the i what is it the ice cream museum of ice cream when I see those spaces, I just see um, a lot of borrowing, actually, from visual artists that that created immersive sculptural work. And it's interesting to see this younger generation take on that form and really monetize it.
0: Yeah, right? <laughs> You're like, oh, that...
1: <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I could have made a million dollars off of my horror installation
0: right yeah the, yeah the platform just wasn't yeah it's 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 funny how I, maybe it's just a, a symptom of you know getting older and seeing things change you know but yeah i do have a, a great nostalgia for that kind of like installation experience that i don't think is quite so prevalent anymore you know i was listening to that podcast i don't know if you've heard it uh, death of an artist and they're talk, it. it's it's about you know carl andre and the situation with his you know with with the death of his wife and and but they're talking about minimalism in a way and talking about dia beacon and that kind of experience that feels so nostalgic you know that it, it, it's just a different way to experience a show and, and work and, uh, you know, traversing through those times, I, f- I can't help but feel nostalgic about it. Because I'm certainly excited about all the, all of what technology has to offer. And the, it's the sort of like, you know, the new realm and as far as being able to inject into, you know, artwork uh, a new life in a way. Mm. But I don't, I, I imagine that, you know, it's, You've had an interesting go at, at working with media and and leading up to where we are now. I don't know how much it's entered in, you know, technology is necessarily entered into the work and how you show it. But is it something that you're, you know, you've kind of like got a way of working at this point and you're sticking with that or you're just continually evolving the technology involved?
1: Um. Well, I mean, I do, I do have a specific way of working that for me, um, I won't be leaving anytime soon. It's just, um, a place that making my work is a place that brings me a lot of joy and also is a place to kind of put my, my thoughts, um, a place to put all of the things that I don't understand in the current moment and to turn them around and to try to find structure or meaning in this group of thoughts. Um, So the writing and, you know, sets and shoots and have it working with um, camera people, all of these things are an important part of the process for me. But I think some of the things that have changed, I'm quite excited about. I mean, for my last film, I did a Kickstarter and that was a really interesting experience. Um, Not only because it helped, it was a different way to get funding that felt um, generated by me, by my studio. So that was quite exciting. Um, but the communication aspect as well, um, when I was shooting, I mean, for some people that were supporting the project, I would send them every time I had a shoot day, I would send them footage, you know, at the end of the day or the next day, um, or invite people onto the set. And, uh, that my shoots have always been one of my favorite parts about making my work. And it's always been a private thing for the people that are on the set with me so that felt kind of fantastic and utterly new to have other people along for that that aspect of making work
0: right um well so we we kind of jumped in the deep end of the pool with this stuff but uh, i'm interested in the fact that i mean you you grew up in new york right not new york city but was it tarrytown
1: I was born in Terrytown and I grew up in the town next to Salem in Massachusetts. Oh, okay. Um and then I moved back to New York for art school when I was in my maybe 18, 17, 18.
0: Right. At Parsons, yeah. right? Yeah. Mhm. So what well what was growing up like? I mean, you didn't spend any time really in Terrytown. You moved out pretty early.
1: Um yeah i moved when i was quite young and i moved you know this place that i grew up in in massachusetts has a very special history um so that certainly marked um, images and things that i think about i mean you know when i was um, in elementary school one of the things that elementary school kids did was they went to the local graveyard and did grave (laughs) robings and you know we were four when we moved there and I remember the first thing that my family did was go to the witch trial museum and watch Giles Corey get crushed to death by rocks you know and um there are (laughs) it's a pretty sounds sounds like a
0: a good first step into the neighborhood
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's just it's a pretty specific place, and yeah. there is a lot of um, uh, quite intense history that happened there. And the place is it's a very beautiful place. It's a place that really embraces um, embraces uh, visuals of this early, you know, formative period, and also is quite um, interested in the. Um, the violence of of this early time. And so, yeah, so that that was a formative experience, I guess.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. And, you know, that kind of narrative is, is just sort of a microcosm of the way that plays out in so many other ways in our society over history or whatever. But I will say that that specific, you know area and the the past there has a kind of an aesthetic as well you know that's tied to it obviously you know your work taps into I would imagine that kind of relationship of that aesthetic um, I, I can't you know I grew up we grew up in the same generation and you know I, I remember the goth thing happening <laughs> you know and I don't know like That was so tied to, you know, Robert Smith and kind of like, you know, certain music and it was kind of stylized in a way, but it seems that you got introduced to it in a, in a deeper kind of like more environmental way, which I'm sure ingrained into your visual mind a little deeper, right? Well,
1: Massachusetts also had a great music scene. So, you know, I I also was in high school going to see the Pixies or to see, um, you know, Boston hardcore bands. And um, I lived in a cave and I lived in Berlin, which has the best clubs. And so I would go see live music there. And um, yeah, and then reading when you grow up in Massachusetts, you read Hawthorne and Melville and Poe and... Lovecraft and you know so all of these um formative authors also have um this combination of i don't know the real and the imagined um history and social interaction and yeah
0: yeah it's it- it's funny it's it's dark stuff but there's there's a deep beauty to it you know and I guess I think when I when I've experienced your work you know I feel like it has that um duality I don't even know if it's necessarily a duality but um you know there's that aspect of a certain brooding darkness or impending something and then a sort of dark beauty to it all
1: Oh, thanks. I don't think of my work as being too terribly dark. I mean, I think if you listen to someone like The Smiths or The Cure or something, there is a humor to this. And
0: You know what's funny, though? I say it a lot. I say The Smiths make me happy. I know it's supposed Morsey is supposed to be depressing, but not at all.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: That said, Elliot Smith, very depressing.
1: That is very depressing.
0: <laughs> it's not cheery at all. And he it does it's funny not because, have
1: a sense of humor at all. No, no.
0: no there's no play in it. It's just yeah. dark. Yeah. Yeah. But it's beautiful, true. you know. It's it's there's that line there, you know. And and I guess I don't think of your stuff necessarily as dark and as some sort of like morbid darkness or whatever, but there is a sort of shadow play dark quality to it in the sense of like light dark you know
1: yeah well you know I am an American artist and America is a dark place with a bloody brutal history Um, and so my work I think reflects the complexity of of that state of being of being American Americans are also funny though I mean this is what I found living in Berlin that I missed the casual humor of um, an American conversation. Americans can laugh at themselves as well in a lovely way.
0: And yeah, maybe, I, well, oh, I yeah, think it's it it could be symptomatic too of that kind of struggle or, or that environment. I mean, if you think of, you know, it's, I guess it's kind of cliche at this point, but you know, most comedians say that they were that comedy is born out of a real darkness of a, you know, a experience of youth, you know, of going mm. through some, some shit that, that makes them have to, you know, use humor to cope with it.
1: Yeah. This is making my work sound so intense though. I don't, I don't think it's so heavy. <laughs> no,
0: I mean, yeah, well it's, yeah, it's not, it's very visual. It's the same, it, it, seemed, it yeah and there's play there all the elements to it I guess just trying to get to the core that's a pretty unique um growing aesthetic experience growing up I would imagine you know what I mean so I I guess just finding what's at the core of it it's not what it's all about it's just there's some stuff there you know
1: yeah I mean there's a lot of visual pleasure in my work as well I think I mean I'm very interested in color and beauty and um painting composition. So there's that as well. There's a bit of a romantic streak in my work as well, I think.
0: No, I think it yeah. I I think it's there's a real beauty to it. Like the it was the quickening, right? Is that the one with the light coming through the trees? Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's, you know, it's quote-unquote dark in a sense. It's there's a mysteriousness to it, but there's a beauty and a play to it as well.
1: There is. There is I mean, um
0: shadow play is creepy right you know those it's it's funny and it's 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 whimsical and it's also creepy like when people do those shadows on the wall there's something really fun and cool about that and it's also kind of scary in a way
1: (laughs) but isn't the ring of trees just kind of like a club experience i mean to me those dark spaces with lights like that are also music spaces which are spaces of celebration and joy you know totally it's just yeah. you go no, at night
0: <laughs> I, I I agree I mean you know I used to play in bands and music was a big part of my life and you know going out to see music was a big part of that too um, mm. it's just sometimes the galleries are so pristine that they don't feel the diviness isn't there <laughs> you know exactly. what I mean exactly which takes your mind out of it a little bit but then there's people you know like Kristen Oppenheim who've done installations with sound that gets you there even in that pristine sort of gallery experiences which is really interesting but music's been a part of your films too i mean is that something you're always uh collaborate to be totally honest i don't know if if those are collaborations or how you you know how the music enters into the equation
1: the musician i've collaborated most with is andy comer who's done quite a bit of um recording instruments and voice recordings. He did that fantastic vocal sound that's in the quickening Mm -hmm. during the chase scene. And he also did that. He had these great analog um, uh, drum machines, um, which we used to set a beat behind the running. And in my last film, my werewolf film that was at Marian Boski in 2018, I had piano recordings of his from 2005. Mm -hmm. I um, would go down to his basement and he'd just play the piano and I'd record it and bring it home and put it on a hard drive. Um, And then, you know, I sat on those recordings for, I guess, 12 years, 13 years, (laughs) and then mixed them into that... um, that film and I sent it to him and he was really delighted. It was just, it was just lovely. Um, so he's the one that I've really collaborated with. I, I pirated music for many years, which I'm trying to stop doing because it limits where I can show my films. Um, I have one film that has Phil Collins in it. <laughs> you know? no. <laughs> which is it's uh that's a big um that's going to be a big no whatever in certain contexts to be able to show that show right. that piece so
0: well did how did that um well actually you know growing up did that were you were you taking photos were you drawing what what was the how did art kind of find its way into your life' Because it sounds like music was something You know that you were into you're going to see you know seeing the pixies in boston sounds pretty great um you know i imagine that 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 just it's funny music just kind of falls into your lap in a way it's like your friends listen to it. it's just something that a a mode of expression not everyone finds drawing or or art in the same uh, pathway how did it come into your path um
1: I had always been interested in it and I you know was the kid who always was taking art classes I was painting um quite a bit and I also had a good camera I had my my mother's camera which it's actually sitting here in front of me on the table this is Nikon F um which is a 35 millimeter film camera. So that was my first camera. It doesn't have a light meter. It's from 1962, something like that. And it takes, it had beautiful lenses, so it takes, it takes nice pictures. Um, I met a friend in high school whose father was making abstract steel sculpture. And he, he had an engineering company. Mm-hmm. So he supported his family as an engineer, but he had been quite serious, you know, about his, um, sculptural practice. And I had the family that I grew up in, um, didn't have any knowledge of or interest in contemporary art, really. Although, you know, my my family really loved culture but culture for them was classical music and matisse you know Mm. (laughs) um so this friend uh really introduced me to contemporary art and when i was in high school and it i became really fascinated by the language of it and the logic of it and the challenge of it and i think that um that was a kind of opening up for me you know and I did the in high school I did the RISD summer program where I met um the artist Adam Putnam do you mm-hmm. know his work yeah. yeah
0: wait didn't he show at Sandra and Ray, at least in a group show or something maybe
1: he did and he's at ppow now his work is so beautiful so we met each other when we were 16 um yeah and then i went to art school i mean it was um yeah it was just one of those things you know when you learn about something and it's like a revelation like oh i have to be in that world it makes so much sense to me so fascinating to me
0: yeah well, how was your yeah. New York experience as an undergrad? I always wonder, because I never went to A, art school, or B, school in the city. I always wonder, because it seems like there would always be so many distractions, so much good music, so much stuff to do. How did you take to it? Or maybe that was, you know, paradise.
1: Yeah, you know, I thought that the I, the Boston clubs and the Boston music scene was, to me, Better than the New York clubs when I moved here.
0: The Middle East Although was s- pretty good, right?
1: Yeah, I mean the the oh the Middle East in Boston. Yeah. Wow, I forgot about that place. Um, yeah, that place oh, were you was seeing, good. Where were you
0: seeing shows? I know I we the band I was in played at the Middle East, and that was the place that when I was in Boston I always went to. So I didn't really know that many other places, but where were your haunts?
1: It was so long ago, I I don't remember, you know. Um, It's amazing to hear that the name of that place, yeah.
0: I mean, that's the only reason I know. And there were
1: great New York clubs, CBG was still open, there was the Knitting Factory, but the clubs are more, they're smaller, you know, and um, I had seen... In Boston, I guess the clubs had bigger spaces and were a little more raw. I mean, I remember going to see, was it broadcast that were just, they did all like distortion. I mean, I lost so much hearing at so many different shows where you'd walk <laughs> right. out from yeah we the did. show and your ears would just be ringing.
0: I, know, I've i told it, the story on the podcast of the, um, My Bloody Valentine so destroying loud. my hearing.
1: Um, Yeah, so art school in New York was fantastic, and it was actually quite focused. I mean, I wound up um, at Parsons with Adam, and we were in all of the same classes together. Um, So how lucky was I um, to be with someone so, so smart and such a wonderful artist and there were a number of other artists in that program that were really quite good um yeah and then i took a year off and then i went to columbia um and that was a great experience as well so yeah
0: what were you making like in undergrad
1: oh i was um i was doing a bunch of different things i wound up As an undergrad in the painting department, um, and in my, at Parsons, if you were an art major, photography was not part, was not part of being a studio art major. So I took classes in the photo department quite a bit, selectives, um, where I learned, you know, how to print and use my camera properly and all this stuff. Yeah. Um, I was doing performance work, I wasn't doing video. I didn't do video until I was in grad school. Um, Partly because I, at the time, it was very expensive to edit um, video work and I didn't have a powerful enough computer that could do something like that at home. I mean, it's ridiculous now you can edit video on your phones, but I remember the first video that I shot was at Columbia, which is this film, which is still shown now, um, making out with myself. And um, when I edited that, I edited that on a media 100 system that had these giant um, docks that were the hard drives that you know contained the media. And if you ever see that film, it's three minutes long, it's um, it's a single-channel film. Uh, it's done badly with a blue screen. But, I mean, a three-minute-long piece of footage <laughs> is not going to break anyone's machine right. now. Um, but at the time, it was just an obscene amount of memory, you know.
0: It's crazy um, how it's changed, right? How much easier it is.
1: Yeah, it's true. I mean, all the change now is a bit of a... Um, challenge for me because i've worked in so many different formats and so now i'm at the age also where i'm kind of dealing with archiving older work yeah. and moving through all these different formats and, and media but yeah
0: yeah it was more of a task i think to to just do that i mean video at that point like everything's so expensive the you know the equipment's so expensive it's like when we played music you know, we recorded our second record at Steve Albini's studio in Chicago. And, you know, it's so much stuff and it's just this huge process. We had to like save money to, you know, it was such a thing. And now, like, you can do that stuff. I mean, albeit not the same quality, but you could just do that stuff in your bedroom. It's, yeah. it's amazing. Like, the shift. Yeah. I, yeah.
1: That's quite fantastic. I love that part too. Um, Everything's so much more accessible. And really, small cameras, I mean, cell phone cameras can be quite interesting and and quite good. So that's lovely. You don't need this massive infrastructure. I mean, I was doing um, some projects for a curator in London, Charlie Fox, and he just did a shoot for a magazine where he got a Hi8 camera um, and shot some video footage with a Hi8 camera. And so I was thinking about those cameras again, because I have a closet full of old cameras just in case, you know, so I can access old media or old masters. And um, I was looking at them recently thinking, oh, wouldn't that be kind of fantastic? In a future film, to have some moments with really old formats. Um, it could be really beautiful. Do you remember that oh. vampire film that was shot with the Pixel Vision? What was that?
0: I don't know. When was this done?
1: I want to say the 90s. I mean, remember Sadie Benning used the Pixel Vision to make those early films
0: god i don't even know what pixel vision is
1: oh here's the the film was nadia michael amareda oh yeah from 1994. and it really uses the kind of low resolution of the pixel vision it's beautiful you should watch it
0: yeah i'm checking it out i'm noting it now but what is pixel vision
1: it was a camera, a Pixel Vision camera, was a toy video oh. camera that came out in oh, the I early remember. '90s. Yeah, it's like a handheld, and,
0: like a like a little camera.
1: Yeah, and I think you had to run it into a VCR, something like that that takes that took VHS tapes. Memories. Um, that it didn't have. I think it didn't have an in-camera way to record media so it had to be daisy changed into something else and those that was also i believe with sadie benning those great pieces um that they did that um they won the macarthur for Those early sadie benning videos i think those were shot on pixel vision
0: it's so cool i love that That sort of like transition technology is I like I I was infatuated for a while with Viewmasters because I grew up with those
1: oh yeah and, um,
0: I had a show in Verona that was basically all the paintings were about optical phenomenon in nature so I had like I made custom Viewmaster reels of the images and you could look at them in the gallery while you were looking at the paintings too and uh, they're just they're like kind of this charismatic whimsical in between like weird things you know that I just find fascinating.
1: Yeah, I was just at Yado in June, and they have a um, stereoscope image collection. You know, with those, you hold them up. They're those little wooden viewfinders, and uh, there's a photograph, two photographs next to each other. And so you look at it, and you see an image in three dimensions. So all of the images were from a hundred years ago, these um, travel images, international travel images, they're quite beautiful. I mean, formats are always in flux, right? So yeah. um, what the current most expensive thing is or the current most cutting edge thing is in two years will be old news and then there's something else new that comes. And um, But I think a wonderful thing about having um, shot for a few decades now is that the arriving at the newest, latest, most high resolution um, format isn't necessarily going to give you the most beautiful image. I mean, right. moving image is like painting or something in that way. That it, it's about the image being beautiful or the image being meaningful um or the image working with the subject matter in a way that um is the most effective visually or the most effective in terms of meaning um and this is actually the thing that is unique about the art space for moving image work versus a commercial moving image space that Working with older formats can be content and information. It isn't some, you know, budget failure. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> Definitely. Uh, sometimes it equals beauty, you know.
0: Yeah, I think there could be a parallel drawn there from like technical proficiency and any sort of way of making. And you think, oh, the more technical, the better, you know, or the more beautiful or the more pure or whatever. But then we all found out when like HD went like really HD. And we saw mm-hmm. stuff on TV and we're like, I don't need to see every pore in that person's face. Like it's actually distracting. <laughs> it's like too, yeah. it's, it's more real than real life in a way. Cause your eyes don't actually see all that information. So it's become like, you know, it's, it's gone past that point.
1: Yeah. And then now there's color grading so that people can paint again with all of that detail. There's still right. a way to transport um, someone into this imaginary space so they can break the break the um, break reality but and lose themselves in, in the image
0: right well yeah. well getting back to when you were in grad school and about to graduate, what did your work culminate into did you did you make sort of like a thesis film or we you doing you were doing some video right
1: I was doing... Um, some video I mean I made some pieces during grad school and right after that are still shown but not not a lot I was quite young when I went to grad school I was I was 23 um, when I started grad school and so I was still growing and and changing quite a bit Um, my final thesis show was it was a series of photos that I would just never show it now um but all the horror photos that was my first solo show uh, at Sandrony Ray um which are ones that still you know they still are exhibited um and they still kind of show up online quite a bit um
0: they hold up
1: <laughs> <laughs> those were made um either yeah, right after right after grad school, like maybe a little bit while I was, not while I was in grad school, I think right after. I was, my partner at the time, I went through two years of Columbia and then I was um, uh, with someone who then did two years of Columbia immediately after me. So in some ways I had this four year experience with the Columbia grad program and um you know everyone that was in school there would kind of drink at this one bar. So I, I feel like I know, you know, four years of um of graduating classes from that program. That seems so like some you of th- Columbia. <laughs> it was, but <laughs> it was nice. It was an exciting time for the program, I guess. But yeah, some of the horror photos I made when I was just out of school, um, but my partner was still in school, so I was still kind of connected with the program at the time that I was making some of those.
0: What year did you graduate from grad school? Um,
1: 1998.
0: Okay. So I was 99, and I was, you know, the photographers at Yale when I was there were pretty amazing. Um, at, were you aware of some of those? Cause they did that show called, uh, Greg Crutzen curated it called Another Girl, Another Planet, I think it was called.
1: Yeah. I did a studio visit for that show, but it was too, my work was too crazy. I remember, um, Gregory brought Jeannie Greenberg to my studio and I had all the <laughs> photographs of so people cut in half and, you know, oh, I, had, I saw, yeah, like,
0: I've seen that oh, at least one of those images of the, yeah, yeah. Those, it was a little too. It's, it was too heavy for them.
1: I think it didn't. They they felt like it didn't fit into the rest of the group. They were a little different, and they weren't. You know that work is um, Yale as a as a program. the The photo department is so much. Um, there's so much technical excellence in that program, and the horror photos are pretty. Um, I was shooting with this high-speed film. It was like a 800-speed Kodak uh, medium format, like 6. I was shooting with a 6.45, and I was shooting to have the grain really um, break up on the surface of the image, so printing them overly large. They're larger than would really hold up, you know, with that um, speed film, so they're very grainy. They were huge, super violent. I mean, they just didn't—they didn't make sense with um, with those other photographers. But yeah, I know—I know that work that you're talking about. Yeah.
0: Yeah, but there was—I uh, yeah. would imagine that there could be that you could feel somewhat of a connection. like people like Mallory Martor were making work that was so raw. I mean, it might have been technically whatever it was, but it was about this sort of like. I mean, it was a pretty, like, punk rawness to it, at least in my mind. Oh, memory. yeah,
1: and Dana Hoey is, is amazing. I mean, there mm-hmm. were some great artists in that. And Crutzen has always been a real supporter of mine, so, you know, it wasn't, um, I didn't feel rejected. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I felt more amused. Um, and, and it really didn't, aesthetically, really didn't fit. Um, yeah, but, a, yeah, I remember it, that show
0: he's a champion you know it's funny because i interviewed him i had no idea that he was in a band that was kind of well known
1: i didn't know that either
0: yeah the speedies i think they were called but yeah um it turns out he was doing the cbgb thing and yeah it was it was pretty great to interview him um i'll google it
1: for sure the speedies
0: i think that's what they were called there's not a lot on them online it's it's amazing there's there's like a pre- you know, on the internet, you just assume you can see and hear everything, but some things are still tough to get to. Mm. But um. So, so did you move to Berlin shortly after graduating?
1: I um. I won the Berlin Prize, the American Academy in Berlin um, Prize, and so I moved out there to. Um, live at the American Academy of Berlin, and I made um, Hans and Gret, this uh, two-channel installation that was a big one for me. Um, that was my piece that was in the Whitney Biennial. And um, yeah, and I, I fell in love with it while I was there. I mean, I think I had you know, New York in the 90s, Brooklyn in the 90s. It was just so magic. It was very inexpensive. Um, there's lots of space there were so many creative people there it was and I could feel it um, just tightening somehow and I went to Berlin and it felt so huge and unknown and you know strange and alive and so I, I moved back to I finished up at the American Academy in Berlin And I moved back for a year between 2002 and 2003. And then I was back doing a solo show at the Kunstwerke. And um, yeah, and I, uh, honestly, I I fell in love. (laughs) I was installing that show. And then I just decided to, Uh, just you know blow my life up which sometimes people do Um, and I yeah 2004 I was in the Whitney Biennial I moved back to Berlin and then had this kind of um, transient life for several years where I moved a lot and did projects in different countries and I didn't quite have an apartment of my own. Um, I had a storage space where I would bring... I would make work and do big shoots. And I had this storage space in um, Schoenefeld, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I forget. And I would bring it there. And it was like this crazy building that had been a... Um, it had been a bomb shelter during world war Two, and then in the 80s it was in east berlin so in the 80s it was like a heavy metal practice space and then it was like a samsung um and it was kind of underneath this samsung that had been closed and so <laughs> i would go you know with all of my stuff and like take it down these you know bomb proof corridors to this back room and toss things in there and close the door and then go get on a plane go someplace else and so that was my i did that for for a while for a long time was it
0: just about kind of not wanting to you know dig in anywhere and just being able to see different things or what what was the impetus to to not drop anchor
1: i I think it was, yeah, I it's funny, I think about it quite a lot because I do um uh, very definitively live someplace now. I mean, I also have kids and stuff, so I think a lot about how productive it is to not have a place that you you are. The custodian of you know even with an apartment you have forks <laughs> I <don't know>. yeah. <laughs> and i mean it's it's a privileged thing to be able to not have a permanent apartment but always know that you're going to have some place comfortable that you will be sleeping um right. so i was you know subletting apartments and all of this stuff i wasn't you know it was a very comfortable kind of transient um, lifestyle or I'd stay with my um, German boyfriend or at his place or um, and do projects in different places where I would be you know housed comfortably And um, but to not have to think about um, I don't know owning things is um, is its own kind of trap I think <laughs> Yeah,
0: it really is a dropping anchor you know, you're committed. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I, you know, I have this permanent studio now, which I love, and it's it's really good for especially older work to be able to know that um, older work that I've held on to is in a temperature-controlled space or it's accessible. My records are accessible. It's great for shooting small things because my lights are all in one place and I have um, I have a comfortable great space where i can make small objects but there is something really fantastic about um there was something it was incredibly productive this time period where i was traveling all the time
0: so is your studio i mean is it near where you live are you there Uh, like how does your studio process work because i imagine a lot of work that you make isn't necessarily in the studio or maybe i'm wrong
1: yeah i have a um a barn behind my house now. I moved just outside the city, um, so I found a place that had a big, um, barn space that was, you know, it's like this little house in a big barn. Um, so I just finished, um, I call it renovating, but it's really just, it was, it was this empty shell. I mean, coming from Berlin or Brooklyn I had this um idea of moving into a raw space that was you know the space (laughs) without walls and a roof you know so I saw this building and I thought oh haha this shall be easy I'll just move my stuff into there um but I it needed to be insulated and have some heat put in there so I just finished doing that and Yeah, there's a wood shop in there. I mean, I do a lot of building um, things out of wood, weird, tiny furniture that's poorly made out of (laughs) wood. There's, like, clean areas and messy areas in there. And, um, yeah, so I've been just making photographs and making small objects. And I'm I'm working on a script right now. So um, in early stages with... Uh, my films I do a lot of I spend a lot of time alone and try to develop um, in my mind what characters will be in the film um, what time period I'm thinking about what you know if I'm using found writing from um, published authors you know looking through texts and accepting texts if I'm working with a, a living Author, then when I have an idea of images and place and who, like, my films don't have a lot of people in them. They have between two and five people. Five would be quite a lot. Um, it's probably usually more like three or four. Um, when I have a sense of that, then I'll um, reach out to a writer and start to work on, on texts for the um characters to be able to speak and say something say something meaningful
0: right i sometimes when people ask me if because i do painting collage and animation if there's a specific ladder like i start with drawing a collage and then it goes to painting then animation but i it's so cyclical and they all feed each other and i so i kind of don't like that question but i wanted to ask maybe yours is the same way it's like do you start with the idea with the film and then the photographs or stills come from that or the sculptural elements are branched out of that or they feed into the film or is there any linear process to that or is it all kind of like a cloud-based system?
1: It's a little messier than that right now especially because I have finally um, this fantastic studio space so i have been making sculpture i've been making some public sculpture um Mm -hmm. for the first time and i have started since i i renovated my studio i started um creating still lives actually so i've i've been having a a photo practice that's apart from um my films and then i briefly um kind of dipped my toes into commercial photography and um, it wasn't super successful um, (laughs) when I tried to do that. But I do sometimes still do editorial shoots, which I really enjoy. Um, So there's that as well and, and that's easy to do. Um, in my barn. But with, with the, my longer films, they take longer to make. I do a lot of fundraising for them. Um, I try as much as possible to pay the people that are on my sets, um, you know, working for me or working with me. Um, so I raise money to, um, just to pay for the shoots. And do this it's just a slow process it's like a multi-year process um so those are i think really the i don't know the heartbeat that drives my studio these these big narrative film projects but Mm -hmm. it's certainly not the only thing that is happening in there
0: right and well what is uh what's music what's music's role in your life now How's it enter your day to day?
1: It's in my day to day. I don't know. I love music so much. I mean I need music to work. I always listen to music when I'm working. Anything, For
0: anything you're into lately?
1: Um oh not to be an old person, but I just <laughs> got a record player. You know, I um I've been traveling in Toronto. I'm doing this public sculpture in Toronto and I was in Toronto taking some pictures for the sculpture and meeting with a fabricator and I stayed at a hotel where they had a a record player in the room it was one of these it's a nice hotel and um you know like the thunderbird in Marfa where you can get the typewriter you know did you ever stay there
0: no but Uh, but I know what you're talking about
1: yeah, so this was similar, where they had a record player in records in the rooms, and it was so fun to put on a record. Um, so I went home, and I bought myself a record player. So I've nice. been listening to, yeah, to a lot of records. It's been really nice.
0: Just different What's, uh, what's been your favorite recently? I'm just trying to get, like, one artist. <laughs> like, Well, could...
1: I listen to so many. I'm afraid to say one thing, because totally it's really it. so many... I mean, a friend of mine just sent me the soundtrack for Only Lovers Left Alive. Did you ever see that?
0: No, I don't know it.
1: It's the um, Jim Jarmusch vampire film. It's set in Detroit at night. It's just really beautiful film. Um, yeah, and I've been getting, you know, a new record player. You get old old favorites and I don't know. There's a lot of different, different things. Different things I've been
0: listening to. Oh, Bill Laswell's on that soundtrack. Jarmouche was such a huge like. When I was in undergraduate school, there was a video rental place that that rented out classics on VHS for twenty five cents a night, and I swear I moved through you know a significant portion of of um, film history that summer. <laughs> and Jarmouche was like a high point, but I just don't watch ever since i had my son I, I feel like i don't go to movies anymore so i end up just watching the marvel stuff and like the stuff that he's into
1: some of the marvel stuff is quite good yeah the writing well he, is very good
0: yeah he's into uh nolan now too so like inception and all that stuff which i love so it's it's getting good Mm. but um i
1: mean did you see the sam raimi marvel the last one Where there was, like, this very big-budget zombie scene with Doctor Strange as a zombie surrounded by demons.
0: I haven't seen it, but my son, like, Rotten Tomatoed that movie. He said it was horrible. He won't watch it. (laughs) Oh, really? You would like it.
1: Because it's Sam Raimi that that did it, and so there's a lot of horror. They have, like, a Carrie reference in there, and they have... um, yeah, you know, because he did like Evil Dead and Evil Dead too. So, it's like someone gave the director of Evil Dead two hundred million dollars to make a magic zombie that has a a cloak made out of demons and oh stuff. God. The um, images in the final scene, this this like zombie scene, art—you'd really love it. Yeah. that
0: sounds cool. I love a it's funny because whereas my wife and her sister will get into those Thai horror movies, which are supposedly I've never watched them, but they're supposedly just like brutal. Um, I, my my horror or my scary movie enjoyment lies in like the psychological or where it, it gets really close to real life, you know, like the shining kind of stuff.
1: Well, The Shining is so beautiful. I mean, the the set design and that is just amazing, and the acting and, and all this stuff. Yeah, yeah.
0: It, it it's funny. I I've come around to some of those movies later, and I remember this is years before the remake. But I remember seeing Suspiria way after the fact, and I definitely jogged my my memory of your work. Like I thought, oh, I wonder. Oh yeah, <laughs> of you course. Were into that movie. I mean
1: yeah the beginning of the quickening there's a couple of murders in the quickening that are remakes of argento murders because i you know argento was the killing hand for some of his um some of his films and there's uh yeah there's an early murder in suspiria where he pushes a woman's face through a glass window and so um i had been thinking about that a lot about um what that experience was like, you know, on the set and um what a crazy thing. It's just a crazy thing. So with the Quickening, Annika Trost and Gina Dorio were the um they were the stars of the Quickening. And they're both, you know, really extraordinary um musicians. I don't know if you've ever seen them perform when I when i brought them into that film they were doing this stage show in berlin where they um they would go on stage with a bottle of red wine and then halfway through the show they would just pour the whole bottle of wine on themselves is like so incredibly visceral and just a crazy thing to do and so i asked anika about um restaging um part of that murder you know and um so we talked about how to do it the one where the woman's face got pushed through the window um and we kind of talked it through and so the opening of the quickening you see that woman's face annika tross face being pushed against the cabin wall and so that was um a collaboration with her to kind of re-experience that, mm-hmm. <laughs> that crazy set moment. Yeah, so Argento, yeah, for sure. I looked at him a lot. I've yeah, been looking that... at Sergio Leone, actually, recently. It's been, you know, those films are really beautiful. There's, um, what, what are they? I mean, there's Fistful of Dollars and
0: oh, I Once seen Upon that time a Time in the time. West. That was like my dad's kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, I just watched Once Upon a Time in the West. Is that... That's Mm -hmm. the film title? The shots are incredible. I mean, the cinematography and... And I was reading um, about about it because I was so fascinated by it. I mean, the sound of it and the way it was shot. And um, Clint Eastwood was talking about being on the set of Fistful of Dollars, and he said that he didn't speak Italian and Leonie didn't speak English and many of the actors on the set spoke different languages from each other and didn't understand each other and that the film was shot with sync sound, but someone just lost the sound and it wasn't used anyway in the final film and that they would have different groups of actors to come in and record the dialogue in different languages. So Clint Eastwood came in for the English language recording session, and then there was another group of actors that came in for the Italian recording session. And when you look at them in the film, it's so interesting. Like It explains why they're so silent with each other. You know, they silently pace around each other like tigers you know <laughs> yeah. just not saying anything just looking at each other and it just makes so much more sense if none of them could understand each other you know that they would do so much of the acting without speaking
0: yeah and the that's Morricone is the uh did the soundtrack
1: yeah the soundtracks are amazing it's like mm-hmm. epic
0: I mean I went through mm-hmm. a whole Morricone phase of like you know in through like rye cooter and and bands like tortoise and stuff i kind of i kind of reverse engineered that path and and got really into that stuff but it's it's pretty moody yeah stuff
1: and very um surprising again just kind of jarring like the sounds that are supposed to represent other sounds but and they do and they don't you know um sync up it's it's beautiful
0: yeah the uh the movies that did you i'm sure you've seen it or maybe not but um godard's weekend had such a big impact on me and to me that was kind of like a horror movie in a way
1: <laughs> i did a godard phase i mean with different films i kind of go down a rabbit hole with different directors and when i was working on permanent revolution which was in the arnton partner show i was going through this major godard phase um but that was so long ago i don't actually remember the titles and the films the car crash scene
0: was pretty epic it's like a long panning sequence of like this car crashes that, that it's like a big pile up
1: oh the, i haven't seen that one what's that one called weekend weekend
0: and there's okay. um, actually yeah you should check it out because there's a lot of band like playing music like a band playing music in the forest and yeah it's pretty it's pretty i don't know i saw it a long time ago you know when i was a student and it was one of those movies sometimes when you see a film i think before your brain's ready for it it does a weird it it makes a weird impact on it where you you call back to it in ways that your memory is kind of fuzzy about it because it hasn't you know You haven't had the experience to sort of map it out necessarily, but you'll have snippets of experiences where you're like, oh, and you think back to that movie, you know? Because I saw very, when I was really young, I saw Koyaanisqatsi and that movie to this day still, like I see things and I think of that movie because it just imprinted on my brain.
1: I haven't seen that one either. I have to watch that too.
0: And the the music tied to that, you know, with um, Philip Glass is like pretty amazing Mm. but yeah it's it's funny film is such a you know it's different than art history in that sense i think it you you can navigate there's so many channels you know there's so much that you can go through and you just kind of bump into it or at least when we were i would think in our generation you just got exposed to things you know like i remember seeing halloween i was way too young to see it so i was just at a friend's house and it was on uh...
1: the original halloween is quite beautiful i mean it's really beautifully shot i watched that one for a while when i was i forget what i was working on but the um the the pov shots the these things where you're in the body of the killer um that is shot with the dolly so you're also flying you know you're kind of weightless yeah um That one's really beautiful. Well, I mean, films age, they really age. And there's something that happens 20 years after a film that's made where it's a real truth event for how well the film was made. (laughs) Because when films age badly, it's so awful and you just can't, you can't even make it through. But when a film ages well, it just really transcends its own time and social context and, and all the stuff. And, um, and it's yeah.
0: Yeah, it's pretty amazing if it can do that. Um, I, I wasn't enjoying the cinematography of Halloween when I was that age. Trust me, I wasn't. Looking yeah, at because it wrangles, was, just so was just sent out shirtless. as like
1: a. <laughs> if you watch it now, though, you'll be you'll be really surprised. I mean, the beginning where he has this. Um, I think he kills this babysitter or something like that. Seems
0: the, reasonable.
1: Yeah, the director has him he's like dressed like a clown for Halloween um and the director has him put on a mask and then they put a um a little cut out of eyes in front of the camera so you see through oh, right.
0: the mask through the ma- I remember that yeah
1: yeah and it's it's really pretty elegant actually um and there isn't a lot of graphic if I remember right halloween is not very graphic it's just frightening in that kind of um you know like early polanski where you're always peeping around the corners trying to figure out what's going on
0: yeah
1: um i think early halloween that first halloween has a lot of that where you're peeking around a corner trying to get a sense but you can never quite get a sense of what what this thing is that's after after jamie lee curtis young jamie lee curtis
0: yeah, it's a different kind of scary. So you're working on, you're starting the process of working on new stuff now.
1: Yeah, I'm working on a longer film. Um, so I have, um, I have kind of the basis of a script going. I'm still sorting out my, my characters, I guess, and um, yeah, it's exciting. So I don't want to talk about it too much because I don't want to ruin it for myself. Totally um, understand. But hopefully I'll shoot, um, start shooting this year, hopefully.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the meantime, for people interested in your work and stuff, the best place to keep up to date with what you're doing?
1: I guess my um, gallery in New York, I mean, I have an Instagram that I haven't been going on very much. And I do mean to put um, my films online I guess through my website but I haven't updated my website in forever either so um I don't know that's the worst answer ever maybe in a year google me I don't know. Okay. <laughs> hopefully have these uh
0: well and your you shows know, and stuff will be on the gallery site right
1: yeah 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 I mean like many people in the last few years I just it just my computer crashed in my mind so i'm just kind of um putting the pieces back together to existing outside of my own head
0: (laughs) with you my hard drive's (laughs) full i keep telling people it's yeah it's it's overloaded yeah (laughs) i need to upgrade (laughs) yeah Um, exactly
1: i need an upgrade too
0: so I honestly, I don't say this much, but I mean, I am a huge fan. Like, I've really loved your work for a long time. So it was really cool to talk to you. Thanks for taking all the time to do it.
1: Oh, thank you for inviting me.
0: Sure.